this prophecy of Emmanuel, of God with us, comes in the midst of uh, some really detailed political forecasting by, by Jehovah. Uh, this is, um, the Lord says to the king, ask me for a sign. And you can ask for any sign you want. It can be as deep as Sheol or hell, the abode of the dead. It can be as high up as the heavens. Ask me anything. It was like, um, you know, sort of a town hall meeting, if you will, that the Lord gives to this king. And Ahaz says, I won't ask. I won't test the Lord. Um, even though the Lord is asking to be asked, um, have you ever done that? Uh, ask for questions and no one has any questions? <laughs> That's kind of what's happening. And you're like, uh, I guess they really don't have anything to ask me. Um, and so this is a cop-out by Ahaz. He's He's not interested in knowing what the Lord wants him to do. He's not interested in following God's will. And, and so he uses this lame excuse that he won't test the Lord, even though the Lord is saying, test me, ask me a question. I'll tell you the answer. Um, he's, the Lord is lobbing him a softball and he refuses to hit it. And then Isaiah launches into this tirade about the house of David, this the Davidic kingship, the the kingship that is um, belongs to David. He's anointed with oil and thus begins the, the, the line of kings that are descended from King David, Solomon, Rehoboam, all the way down to the kings that are there in this land at that time. And ultimately, the Messiah must be in the line of the kings of, of Judah, of the, of the kingship of David. So he's talking to all these kings and also to the future kings that are going to come the future king. He says, you know, it's one thing that you tire people around you and wear them out, but now you're going to try to wear out God. In other words, it's one thing to be boring around humans. You're the king, so people have to listen to you. You can't, they can't tell you to shut up or can't walk away from you without dire consequences. But um, now you're going to try to bore God. You're going to try to annoy God in this way. So Isaiah is pretty upset. So he says, you're not going to get a word. You're going to get a sign. And the sign is going to be a young woman will be pregnant. Uh, the word virgin here is used um, in the Hebrew, not in the Hebrew, but in the Greek. When the Bible, the, whole, the Hebrew Bible was translated into Greek by the 70 called the Septuagint. This is before Jesus is even born. So it's not like people are trying to put Jesus back into the, the text of the Old Testament or something. This is before there's Christians, before Jesus is born, all this stuff happens. These 70 people, men in Alexandria, Egypt, translate the Bible from Hebrew into Greek. And when they get to this word Alma, the young woman, uh, Alma means a young woman of marriageable age. It doesn't necessarily technically mean a woman who has never had relations with a man, the way we use the word virgin today doesn't necessarily mean that. But it says, um, the young woman will conceive. Um, the word Alma was translated by the Greek translators, the Jewish Greek translators, into the word Parthenos. You might have heard of the Parthenon in uh, Rome or in Greece, in Athens, I think it is. The Parthenon is the, the shrine to the virgin, uh, the virgin goddess. And so the word Parthenos means virgin, very specifically someone who has not had relations with men. Um, and so when this word was translated, 
when the New Testament writers talked about the prophecies of the Messiah, they used the same word that the Hebrew Bible translators used, the word parthenos, virgin. Behold, a virgin will conceive and bear a son. So normally, this, these verses are translated in the King James and other Bibles, Behold, a virgin will conceive and bear a son. But in the original Hebrew, it's not necessar- necessary for her to be a virgin in the same way that in the story of Mary, that she has to be a virgin. It's very clear that Joseph does not have marital relations with Mary. This is his big problem. He's like, you know, I know I'm not the father. Um, A very human crisis develops, which um, even though it happened 2000 years ago, sounds very, very, very uh, timely and the same crisis we have in our world today, many times. And so this young woman will bear a son and they'll call his name Emmanuel, God with us. This is showing the sign, the sign of this young child that will happen in the few years. It's going to happen like right away for King Ahaz. Um, Once again, the prophetic vision is both short-term and long-term. All the prophets from uh, the ones in the book of Genesis, like, and the ones in Numbers, Leviticus. Remember Balaam, the prophet, who is trying just to save his own skin. He has that running with a donkey. He, instead of cursing God's people, he blesses them and he's doing it for money. And he's like, you know, but even he has this prophecy that not only says something for the time immediately, but also points to the to the Messiah that's going to come. So this, this prophecy is always already and not yet. And Isaiah's prophecy of this young woman and of this child is happening right in their lifetime. And it's also going to happen in the future because this idea of God with us is bigger than just the event that's going to happen in Isaiah's lifetime. And everybody kind of knows that Um, as they study these scriptures over the years before Jesus is born. These are the ones they keep coming back to that this prophecy of Isaiah is not completely finished. It didn't just completely happen in Isaiah's lifetime. This young woman will conceive and bear a son. He'll eat butter and honey. And, reject, and learn to reject evil and choose the good. But then it says a timeline. Before the boy learns to reject evil and choose the good, the land of the two kings will be divided. So at what age do kids learn evil from good? <laughs> That's a fuzzy number for each kid. But I think we're talking a toddler here. Um, someone who kind of knows that he can't go into the cookie jar all by himself whenever he wants Um, And if he does, he feels a little bit bad about it, or at least he has to be sneaky about it. I don't know the age of the child that sort of knows good from evil, um, but it's not an infant. It's not a two-year-old probably, because they don't always know what's up. But maybe someone around four, five, six years old who kind of knows what they're supposed to do, but doesn't always do it. Um, There's many examples of us, of course. So this time when they kind of know good from bad, good from evil, that's the time that the prophecy that Isaiah is saying is going to happen. It's going to happen. The kingdom, the two kings are going to, that you are afraid of, will be abandoned. The Lord will bring upon the people a day of judgment, like the day that Ephraim broke away from Judah. The king of Assyria is going to come, and all this stuff is going to happen. Um, And it'll be terrible, because it's God's judgment for all the injustices that were perpetrated on God's people by the wealthy and powerful people in the land. And so the land will be abandoned. 
It will, it'll grow over with thorns and thistles. Um, David read, the, the, the verses David read were so repetitive. They kind of kept referring to these thorns and brambles again and again. You're supposed to get this vision of just a wasteland. There's no crops growing. Nobody's growing grapes or wheat, the kind of crops that sustain and make life good. There's, they're just grazing areas for random flocks and cattle. That's about all you can do with this land that's so devastated. And then, and then it's setting us up, then again, the cycle of judgment, of desolation, and then return. The return from exile will happen. Isaiah promises that again and again and again, just as God promises that to Isaiah. When Jesus came to this earth, he said he is fulfilling the return from exile. Even when they came back from exile, it was never a full return. It was never the fullness of coming back into their own land. And so when Jesus comes, he's saying, there is a spiritual return to exile that will happen in my own body, in my own life. So we who have been exiled come back into the fullness of the kingdom. And we hold on to this fact that this name Emmanuel, God with us, is the name of Jesus Christ. Now, it's kind of weird in the story of the, in the Christmas story. It says, even in Matthew, it says, um, just as written by the prophet Isaiah, a virgin will conceive and bear a son, and they will call his name Emmanuel. And so Mary gave birth to Jesus, or Mary gave birth to the baby, and they named him Jesus. And I'm always like, hey, I thought they named him Emmanuel. <laughs> so um, Jesus' nickname is Emmanuel. But it's talking not just about a name, but a title. The title of Emmanuel is the title. It's not a name you would call him when you said, hey, get over here. This is a title more than a name or a personification of who he is, an identifying marker. Just like we would say, um, that we would say, um, you know, the, the chosen one in a, in a fantasy story, the chosen one will come and the chosen one comes and saves everybody. Um, this is the idea of Emmanuel, God with us. Something profound is happening with this baby who is born in Bethlehem. God is with us now in a way that God hasn't been with us yet. This is the profound mystery of the incarnation that everyone who's close to it recognizes. This is why the wise men worshiped this baby. You don't just go around worshiping babies, you know? This, they, they recognize that something profound is happening. The inbreaking of God's plan into the world is happening in the life, in this tiny life of this baby born in Bethlehem. So we look around at our world and say, it doesn't seem like anything's going to happen that's good. It's hard to even plan for the future. Um, it's hard to see what, what's life going to be like in a few months or weeks. And yet we know that God's work in the world always happens in small ways. It doesn't happen in big, spectacular ways. It happens in small ways, in, in, a, in a little life born in Bethlehem with a poor couple named Mary and Joseph who are just confused and trying to figure out what's going to happen next. It happens in these small moments that history passes by, but then the spiritual work that happens in these lives transforms the whole world. And so that's the, the lesson of Advent today, is that God is with us. God is with you in whatever you're going through. God is with you in your sorrows, in your griefs, in your joys, in your despair, in your happiness, in your sadness, and all the things that happen in this life. Amen.